Press Fix is a production of JournoDAO, where we explore the intersections of decentralization, media, and independent journalism. Can decentralization save local media and rebuild connection at the community level? Join us and find out. Hello and welcome to Press Fix Podcast, the official podcast of Jirno Dow. My name is Eureka John and I'm your host for today. Being a Dow, we may or may not have different hosts on different days, but we do pride ourselves in being a flattened organization, a decentralized autonomous organization. So yes, today we have everybody with us. We have Crystal Street, Clinomenic, Keith Axline, and Eric Mack. I guess we can start with some introductions and just kind of let people know who we are, what we're about, why we decided we want to do a podcast. So uh, yeah, who wants to go first? Hi, I'm Crystal. I'm a founding member here at JournoDAO and as a former photojournalist um, for several decades. And I've been in uh, the crypto space since 2017 and also an academic, study yoga and Buddhism. I'm Spencer. I'm a founding member of JournoDAO. Uh, no experience in journalism prior to this, but around a year's worth of experience in the DAO space and core a couple other DAOs. And I had the uh, pleasure of getting acquainted with Eric through this DAO space and, and got more and more involved in Journal DAO. And it's been a, a pleasure to watch the, the vision evolve. Yeah, I'm Eric, also a, a co-founder and uh, have been a journalist for over 20 years. And um, part of that is, is following um, blockchain since shortly after its inception and, and kind of waiting for uh, some more practical uses uh, to arrive. And then finally, uh, about a year and a half ago, deciding maybe it was time to try to find some folks to team up with to, to do that ourselves. So yeah, with the whole goal here is to figure out how to, to merge um, uh, traditional journalism and, and Web3, uh, you know, all for the benefit of, of building back up a more healthy, um, particularly local journalism ecosystem. Yeah, I'm Keith Axline. Uh, I'm currently a software developer uh, in a few DAOs, um, but I have previous career in media and journalism at Wired Magazine and Medium, the blogging platform. Um, and during that during that time, I saw a lot of what was not working with uh, the business model around content and journalism, and so when Eric invited me to journal DAO, I was excited to maybe tackle some of these issues head on um, with fundamentally new uh, tools and concepts uh, that I think were, were missing while I was in the space. Okay, and I'm Eureka John. I started learning about crypto in 2018 and then went deeper down the rabbit hole and um, started finding my niche in the Web3 space, learning about decentralized ID, learning about Web3 and journalism. And I met these people here, Eric specifically, where we um, started talking about decentralized journalism. And there he did a presentation on Web3 and journalism, and it really caught my ear and I became more interested. And he invited me to JournoDAO. And here in this community, We've all come here through our own paths and through traditional and non-traditional routes. 
and I guess the playing field seems like it's kind of level here in this DAO where journalism is kind of having a reset and having a way to discover tools to bring it out of the ad-driven model and bring it more back to our community. So I guess the term of the day we can start with is we've been throwing around the term Web3. What does Web3 mean? And would uh, who, who would like to elaborate first on that, that definition? To me, it's just the stage of the internet post-distributed ledger technology and, and all the kind of auxiliary technologies associated with that. Uh, the kind of meme associated with Web3, which has some truth to it, but but perhaps is a, is a bit overused, is that Web1 was read, Web2 was write, Web3 is own. I, I think like as we're, we could probably get into the implications of, of ownership and you know should Web3 all just be about ownership, I think there's other interesting implications about community and not just about financializing everything, but it's essentially a, a way to kind of, it does financialize the internet in a lot of respects, but it also allows for verifiably unique ownership of digital assets. Uh, it's all operating on a, on a sh like various shared databases. Um, but that's, that's what Web3 means to me, is just the internet plus distributed ledger technology. Yeah, I think I'd, that's a good definition. And just to elaborate, I'd say that um, the things that are kind of sticking around uh, I mean, Web3 is an amorphous term that's kind of taken on a life of its own. And like what we would mean like a year ago by Web3 is probably different um, today. But like currently, I think it's, you know, about decentralization. I think um, services with like, a, you know, a central business, central architecture um, is probably not going to be Web3. They, you know, it would at least need an intention to decentralize or plan to decentralize at some point. Um, and also I think what we can talk about today as far as journalism is decoupling, like where I think we're noticing um, so many things are paired that probably should not be like journalism and advertising and web three is kind of a movement to uh, decouple things so that we can, uh, you know, more focus on like, what the value proposition as it is instead of these like uh, sort of legacy path dependencies that we have accumulated over the years that don't actually make much sense and don't really need to be there if we're given a chance to um, start over. And I think Web3 is kind of a chance to do that, like a, a blank canvas to get back to first principles, uh, think about how we would build things um, from the beginning if we know what we know now and um and so it actually you know has less and less to do with blockchain or crypto in my mind and it's more like this this more pure like principles driven uh internet a publicly owned internet um sort of manifesting the ideals that were initially thrown around like in the mid to late 90s when the internet came to be so yeah, along those lines, um, I see it as removing the gatekeepers, like Keith's alluding to, and introducing alternative economic modalities, like like Spencer mentioned. Um, whereas it's not just monetization for a corporate a corporation or some other you know profit driven model. It's monetization really through experimenting with different um, you know tokenization or access points 
and figuring out if we can use those tools to create a public good without government money. Money. So I, I kind of see that as part of the experimentation aspect, especially for journalism. And re- as Keith was alluding to also, just returning to like a more humane approach to technology. Like I see that in removing algorithms and the weaponization of information that a lot of centralized platforms have put in place over the last few years, if we can bypass that with this emerging technology, then we can begin to restore healthy dialogue um, in our communities through, um, you know, removing that, that aspect of polarization that, you know, drove so many corporate models to, to put the click through above all else. So one thing, whenever people hear the word web three, web three has kind of been a word that we have used to replace the word crypto because crypto kind of got a, a bad name for, <laughs> from all the shills and scams and the grifters and everything that's out there. And as journalists or people who are wanting to reform journalism in a way, how do you separate web three from everything else when you're trying to explain this concept to journalists and they immediately think, Oh, you know, bored apes, it's going to drop like everything else. This is all scammy grifter type of stuff. You know, we just saw what happened with FTX exchange imploding. And yeah. How do you get rid of the, the, the chaff? I mean, I guess it depends how much time you have uh, with the person and <laughs> to explain yeah. it, how much they're willing to listen to you, to you uh, talk about it, uh, just because of the the bad name that all this is, uh, has uh, um, earned from from bad actors. But but it's you know, people also paint with too broad of a brush. But uh, I mean, I guess I kind of like to put things into a, a few different buckets in terms of like you know what are you know, the, the areas of intersection for, for Web3 and, and journalism. And one one actually is, you know, the, the financial aspect of it and, uh, you know, freelance journalists or like, you know, small hometown newsrooms being able to, you know, have more direct control over uh, their business models and monetization and all that. Like that, that's definitely um, an aspect of it. And, you know, the things that we've, the really cool things that we've seen creators um, in the arts be able to do with monetizing their stuff uh, and without having to go through um, middlemen um, via NFTs instead, I think there's, there's no reason that, you know, freelancers and other journalists shouldn't be able to do that. So that's like kind of one bucket that, you know, people are interested in that and should acknowledge. Um, and, and then there's another bucket that everyone kind of alluded to in their definitions of um, what Web3 is and, you know, having this distributed ledger technology, but also this like kind of, um, you know, more of a, a community uh, ethos, um, you know, exploring that to see like how that can change the processes that go into news gathering and and publishing news like you know what what efficiencies are there in using a distributed ledger that's you know better than uh the way that news is already being produced right now and the way that it's kind of um reliant in particular on you know just a handful of proprietary algorithms to to surface uh the work that's done whether it's google news or facebook or or twitter like uh, it doesn't seem like a good state 
state of affairs that uh, those are pretty much determining which stories get elevated and read and and which don't. So maybe blockchain offers a better way to do that. And so that's the second category is, uh, you know, um, process improvement. And then there's kind of some of the more exciting stuff. It's all exciting, but some of like the really new frontier is um, I would put in a third bucket. And that's these areas where the ethos of blockchain and distributed ledgers and Web3 uh, like almost perfectly aligns with parts of the ethos of, of journalism. And, and that's uh, that both worlds are really in agreement uh, over the uh, importance of um, uh, a suspicion of, of centralized powers um, and also place a high value on uh, transparency um, and then also uh, on uh, the value of creating something immutable, uh, you know, a permanent record, uh, which is both journalists and people that work in, in blockchain ostensibly are, are trying to do that. So that's like kind of the, the big three bu- buckets that I are like exciting to me. On a meta level, I think, you know, part of this podcast journey should be like really nailing down our memes to that, to that effect. I don't think, um, you know, we have those those snappy memes to to throw around in it. You know, if you listen to the Bankless podcast, some of their early episodes were um, kind of establishing these these memes that they kind of like keep reiterating like over the course of the show, which I find helpful, like the re- the repetition and um, kind of drills it into your head. And maybe mm-hmm. something like you know, not your keys, not your content, or something would be good for us or just yeah. something that's like journalism focused um, that really like demonstrates the value prop here. Um, but I'm, I'm getting a little frustrated with like crypto critics and the, the refrain of like, where are the use cases? Where are the use cases? And it's like, mm-hmm. I'll rattle off like 10 of them and they'll be like, yeah, but like, for example, uh, like digital permanence, like we don't, we don't have that. And you can't have that with web two. Like so many journalists, have gone through uh, content migrations where um, either the place that they were at or they moved somewhere else or like they got a, you know, they upgraded their their content management system and then everything got uh, screwed over or lost or like manipulated, changed. Uh, I think that's a use case that everyone can get behind. And if you can like lead people down the thought process of like, well, how would that even happen? It's like, well, you have to remove the central point of failure, which means you need a network of computers that can all validate the content, like has not changed. And now you're into like decentralization. It doesn't even have to be distributed ledger, like in the case of like IPFS, but just um, you need like ultimate redundancy and then verification models to accomplish this. And I think if you start with the harm, the solution, why that solution needs to be decentralization, like why, because I still think decentralization kind of rings on or falls on deaf ears because like, what does that even mean? You know? And it's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. To your point, Keith, um, when I was explaining this summer, I was explaining to one of my mentors um, from journalism school and he's in his mid seventies, and I've been telling him about this technology over the years, just just sprinkling it into conversation. And we were talking more in depth about it this summer. And he mentioned how he had built a—he's a community journalism professor, and he had built a um, community newspaper that had been live for twelve years in a rural area or in an urban area of North Carolina. 
And all of the information, all of the news sat on servers that were owned by a particular entity. And that entity had changed hands um, over the summer. And the people that owned the server now were not really open to community journalism. They really weren't into it. So he was really worried that that server was going to be shut down and all of the data, all of the journalism from 12 years of this community was going to be gone. So when I explained what we were doing to him from that lens, he didn't care about the technological terms or any of it. I was just like, this is designed to, once you decentralize your information, it protects it so that one person can't own it. And I think um, another news outlet, I don't know if it was in Florida or somewhere in the South, no, actually, I think it was in Virginia, Charlottesville area. Um, somebody recently bought a local newspaper, I think, and then was removing stories off of the server that were um, negative towards them and their business. So that's also, and there's nothing anybody could do. Yeah, so that's that's the centralization point that um, crypto kind of alleviates through the peer-to-peer type of communication. So you have peer-to-peer content, just like you would have peer-to-peer money. Crypto brings in peer-to-peer money. You know, if we don't have peer-to-peer money, and as we move into the digital age, we won't have digital cash. So, you know, there's everything would have to go through Visa or Mastercard or some kind of centralized entity way up there, and all of our eyewitness accounts, all of our information, all of our content will have to go through some kind of central media source that where it gets filtered and and distilled out and not in a good way, you know, in a lot of cases. And a lot of times automated through these algorithms, which you've mentioned, and in a way it brings in AI and bots and even takes human hands out of it. I mean, we could go deep and deep way down that rabbit hole. Crystal, you wrote a sentence as we were preparing for this. And I wanted to break down the sentence some and then hear what you guys have to say. Because it's chock full of definitions and things that need defining. So exploring the nuances between citizen journalism and trad journalism and if and how Web3 disrupts trad and possibly supports citizens. So I guess we need to definitely explore the nuances between citizen journalism and trad journalism and figure out and define for people what exactly that is. I mean, one one thing that comes to mind for me, not as a, a journalist, but when I hear citizen journalist or citizen scientist, I kind of distinguish it from institutional journalist or institutional scientist, someone who's presumably had like a formal education and an uh, orientation within an industry and has professional institutional networks and, and platforms that they can conduct their research on or, or do their reporting from. And then citizen scientists are presumably more independent in their nature or maybe self-guided in certain respects, maybe have maybe have less of a formal education or perhaps they've become disillusioned with the institutional approach and have decided to take things in, into their own methodology. But that's, that's at least what I think of when I hear citizen something here. The citizen scientist uh, distinction it like works a little bit better because typically to be a scientist, you have to have some sort of a degree or, or a certification, um, you know, uh, to put some letters behind your name. Um, and like in, increasingly there, that's kind of been the perception for, for journalism too, but that's actually like a really recent development. And I mean, like in the last 20 years that like, it's kind of an expectation that uh, most journalists have you know gone to uh, at least uh, 
earn a bachelor's degree, if not like a master's degree. But like, if you go back in the previous century, like journalism was really like a working class um, uh, profession where like you didn't necessarily have any kind of degree. And like the people that I learned from at like my first couple jobs, like 20 years ago, were kind of the, the last of this generation where you could have an editor, you know, that is mentoring you who didn't go to college. Um, and, and by the way, we're excellent journalists. Um, and so it's, it's kind of funny, like the, the citizen journalism thing is something that, that has been thrown around in the last, uh, you know, 10 to 15 years. And it makes sense in this context of these days, we expect, uh, all our journalists, particularly national outlets to have that, that master's degree from Columbia, um, which I could get up on a soapbox about this for a long time because I think it's a real negative development um, to have everyone that's reporting the news coming from the same class. Um, it's uh, it's very problematic. Um, so, like, I think some people look at, at citizen journalism as, uh, yeah, it's basically like, okay, here's the untrained volunteers. Um, you know, but I, I came up through, I do have a degree in journalism, but then I went from school to work in the public radio system in which plenty of people in, in public radio, uh, at least it used to be this way, uh, you know, have no formal training. And there is this really wonderful uh, infrastructure uh, where anyone can go and volunteer at a local public radio station. And I know plenty of people that just started out as a volunteer and they became full-time professional journalists. Um, all, almost all training on the job without an actual degree. So in some way, I think I have kind of an unconventional uh, look, idea of what citizen journalism is in which it's it's just kind of real journalism in that like any citizen, you know, with uh, half a brain and like the initiative and the, the care to report fairly on what's going on in their community. Like you can be a, a real journalist. Like I, the degree doesn't really matter. Um, and so like, I, I look at web three as like hopefully helping us get back to that original idea of what a journalist is, you know, and in, in that the degree isn't important. It's the uh, it's, it's the mission and, and then, you know, agreeing to some certain, uh, ethics and and uh, just having a passion for you know telling the stories of your community and trying to seek out the truth. Yeah, that's that that all resonates. I went back to journalism school at thirty to uh, study photojournalism formally, but I was self-taught up to that point. I learned to be a photojournalist by working at a local newspaper out in the mountains, and I was a staff photographer. And a lot of those editors and the the guys running the newspaper were like Eric just described. They weren't from journalism schools. So it's interesting to go to journalism school older and see the structure. And it was during, I think I started in 2005 and then wrapped it up around 2007. And it's when social media was coming online. So that it was, it was becoming a thing that we were using. So the conversation that a lot of professors were having, especially the older ones, was about citizen journalism. Where's the ethical line here if everybody can now publish their own content and be their own news reporter? with you know Twitter and Facebook. So it was really fascinating to watch them have that conversation and it wasn't a positive one. And especially because some of the older professors were, it was a professional school, so everybody was a working journalist at some point. So some of them had come up without that formal training. Uh, so it was interesting, I think it was really the ethical conversation that, that worried them because there was no checks and balances. And I think that's where Web3 introduces that collective fact-checking 
you know, the thing we're experimenting with now, you know, can you put attestations onto a story that then show that it was factual and then can people vouch for it? So that kind of alleviates part of that ethical question that a lot of, um, you know, journalism academics had when citizen journalism was becoming a thing. That's really cool because anybody like Eric explained could be a journalist and then brings in the ethical questions that you had brought up crystal and there's got to be some kind of checks and balances. So degrees formed and I'm not dogging degrees. I mean, I have degrees as well. It's not in journalism, but so it does bring a sense of legitimacy to what saying because they've paid their dues and everybody in an industry wants to work with people who have paid their dues, but then it starts to choke out and eliminate new voices and it creates a, fr- a knowledge gap in there. And then this need for decentralization just explodes and it explodes through technology as we've seen. And then the internet came about and then suddenly you have YouTube and BitChute and Odyssey and DLive and all these, these ways to upload your content. And you have this explosion of just this cosmic soup of just ideas and good, bad, ugly, everything, you name it. And there's no way to filter it. So then in come the algorithms and the technology again to try to centralize and choke it off again. So where are we? I think you just laid it out pretty well. (laughs) We're in the, the age of algorithms being too centralized and we need to uh, diverge from that and uh, put people in control of the algorithms or make the algorithms serve people instead of the other way around. Um, I mean, I, I think the that points to a decoupling for me, the speaking of like credentials and degrees. I think uh, what part of what we're trying to do at uh, JournoDAO is to decouple journalism from like identity where like, okay, this person's a journalist and more like acts of journalism. Like if you've seen that Ratatouille movie, anybody can cook, uh, you know, I think anybody potentially like talent can come from anywhere. Uh, effort can come from anywhere. And the more we can like lay out ideas of what would make good journalism happen um, for communities and for people so that anyone who's motivated and passionate can uh, do good work um, and learn from the whole tradition of best practices and what's been valuable while also leaving room for you know innovation and new voices. Uh, I think accessibility is uh, without um, without giving up like a, a desire for quality, I think is possible and something we should encourage and figure out just exactly how to nurture that. And John, the point you made, um, I think we're seeing in our communities now um, what happens when we allow information to just flow freely without any kind of check and balance. I mean, our public health system is broken, our politics are broken. And a lot of that's because of the information that people have chosen to consume and chosen to take as truth. And because people produced it and put it out and then the algorithms delivered it. So we're actually just watching it happen in real time. And then if we can continue to stand up this viable solution over here on the other side, at some point, I mean, I know people are already looking for a solution. So here's this other model that can counterbalance the destruction that's happened because of centralization. So we're a decentralized autonomous organization. 
I guess we can kind of clarify what that means, why we chose this format. What as a community are we trying to do? This is this this is a huge problem, and we're just a ragtag group of five people right here. <laughs> you know, like who are we to think that we can change journalism through decentralization? I mean, I, I think we're just a handful of people trying shit out, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and like, what, why not? I mean, um, I, you know, I, I guess technically we're not, um, we're, we're not like fully decentralized in terms in, in the way people think of what a DAO is in terms of, um, you know, having a bunch of tokens and making, um, voting on everything on chain. Um, we've decided not to go that, uh, route just yet. Um, after kind of watching how that went when some DAOs like leapt into that uh, feet first and, uh, you know, there's all sorts of concerns. So we're just like uh, kind of trying to work things out uh, while I think not going through the motions of all the stuff on chain, we're still like uh, adopting that, that uh, ethos. Um, but, you know, I started the, the journal DAO server uh, initially after spending some time uh, in in bankless and just uh, looking around at like the really amazing breadth of experience and backgrounds, uh, even like geographic locations of the people that were coming together, uh, yeah, basically around uh, uh, one central meme to do cool stuff and to like just throw stuff at the wall and, and see what what sticks. And I just remember looking around that community of like thousands of people. Uh, and thinking like, you know, if all the people in, in this community were journalists or citizen journalists, um, like we would have a wire service uh, to to rival like the Associated Press or Reuters. And um, so then the idea is like, well, maybe we should try that. Uh, and so so that's that's kind of that's kind of the idea. And I think we've got a, a long way to go to to get there. But um, that's kind of the initial brain explosion. And also for anyone uh, listening who may not be familiar with the term DAO, it's it's largely um, without clear definition. It's a lot of a lot of different things are all calling themselves DAOs, and there are kind of purist arguments that say if your organization isn't fully decentralized, not a real DAO. Uh, I mean, I think there's there's some truth to that idealistically, but in a in a concrete kind of simplified way, I would say a DAO is a it's a digital collective, a digital cooperative. Uh, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And in, in really concrete terms, it's any, to me, it's any group of people that use governance tokens to come to collective decisions, whether or not those decisions are totally executive, uh, like any financial decision is passed through, passed through the DAO, or maybe it's just some decisions that are made this way. That to me is when a, an organization gets into DAO territories when these collective decisions are facilitated on distributed ledgers using governance tokens. Um, but I, I'm not sure if, if we need to go into what those terms mean. I think, uh, John, depending on, on how much, how into the weeds we want to go for those. Oh, uh, well, I was, I was going to leave that because, yeah, it's like a, it's a rabbit hole. But uh, as far as like uh, the experience of coming together with you all and us being the ones here at the intersection of like web three and journalism. Like I think I was ranting at crystal <laughs> one time about this. I'm like, 
why is it us? Like there's there's so many like other people who could could have like seized this opportunity, and we're like looking around, and it's just a it's a vacuum of like all the all the journalists who should be here instead of us. Uh, I think Web three is a scam or whatever, and so for whatever reason, uh, we're the only people who uh, saw the need, and and so we start call, calling ourselves the bad news news bears of journalism because we're just like uh you know could have could have been like the the big names and like the the people who were already in the space and uh but they like explicitly have like no interest in being here so like it's up to us i guess yeah there i think we're just like scrappy and stubborn enough too like i mm. feel like that's part of it and also, we talked about this in the server a few weeks ago. I mean, there's some some of some of the voices that are so against Web three that are in journalism also are coming, and not just in journalism, and also you know thought leaders in other areas are coming from a place of privilege. So they don't need to worry about these things, or they've chosen not to. So they've already built their platforms on on Web two. They've already benefited from centralization. So of course, you know, they're not looking at it through the lens of necessity. They're looking at it through the lens of I've already, you know, I've, I've made my thing. And here's this thing that threatens the thing that I've made because I have chosen not to understand it or I'm looking at it through a different lens. So I think that's part of the conversation, too, that hopefully will just just drift off as this technology shows more proof of concept. Then that conversation will just get quieter. But we're also at this intersection of emerging tech so and change and disruption. It's extremely uncomfortable and journalists are stubborn. So... <laughs> I mean, the stereotype in in the U.S. is at least is that most journalists are are pretty liberal, and that you know we're, I'm talking politically, and I think there's actually plenty of survey results to back this up. But in terms of uh, you know uh, how we approach our industry and and our careers, journalists are actually really conservative and like really slow to adopt technology and adopt mm -hmm. change, you know, which is witnessed by the fact that. Uh, the industry has been crushed by the internet and social media over the last uh, two decades. I mean, you know, the thing, the thing that uh, did more damage to the, the business model of local newspapers was a Craigslist, which it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't get much more basic than that. Uh, and uh, so when you're out competed by literally just Craig Newmark, uh, then I think that's all you need to know. Yeah, the, the Craigslist thing was really the thing that really brought it, the concept to me and the, the whole peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, content, peer-to-peer -peer information sharing. And I guess what we're doing as a DAO is we're just doing peer-to-peer -peer sharing of ideas that we've kind of lost track of. Stumbling through some of the Web3 tools, I mean, I, I, you know, I've always poked around a little bit of HTML code and stuff like that, but I've never been Mr. Hardcore Technologist or Programmer. And I think that's a huge hurdle for a lot of journalists and people getting into Web3 to have to get over is people don't have the, the basic foundations of information technology and information systems. You know, I took you know, computer science 101 in ninth grade. <laughs> and then from there, I kind of just had to learn how to do some things myself to where I could put together some web pages later on in my adult life. But that was upon my own initiative. And, it, you know, a lot of people just don't have that education. And so they see Web3 
and they hear blockchain technology and this suddenly scared off and they just think it's just something for total techie nerds and that so the concepts start to escape them I think a lot of it comes down to language and how we explain it to people. Um, the other day I was explaining public goods and DAOs to yoga teachers and they have zero uh, desire to engage with technology. And when I explained what we were doing here at Journo DAO and I put it in the context of yoga, everybody wanted to learn it. <laughs> and then the next meeting we had, I showed them how to use Discord and I was sitting there and I'm like, we're on Discord now. I'm like, that's the cutest thing ever. So I think you really... <laughs> come into the conversation by you know their pain points and what they want to change like the mission itself technology is how just would you put that in, sorry how would you put that in the context of yoga <laughs> like, i said yoga should be a public good and and we should govern oh, okay. you know we could form these small groups just like we're doing with DAOs, and we can call them DAOs or call them whatever yoga language you want to use and then we self-govern mm -hmm. through technology and then we spread you create a protocol and just like we're doing with figuring out here, you experiment, create the protocol, figure out how to fund it with this alternative economic system, and then you drop it in other communities, and then you let them dictate what it looks like for their community. It's the same with journalism. You just let us form prototypes and then form organizations and then sprinkle it around. That makes so sense. a protocol is just a set of guidelines, a way of doing things within a certain framework that you can kind of lift out of one organization and plop into another one and if they follow the same then the same result should ideally happen right yeah i mean just like cooperatives i mean here's here's yeah. a cooperative structure here's a here's the technical stack you use here's the human stack you use here's how you organize through technology and then here's how you take it into real life you need to have that bridge between technology and irl or else it's kind of just us playing on our computers I think you can okay. also, correct me if I'm wrong, you can also think of a protocol as not necessarily something that is taken taken out and then like plopped in like a plug and play thing. But, you know, it's also common rails that any organization can tap into. Like obviously the internet is built on on protocols. So we don't, we don't take the internet and like take it up and we put it in this other company's infrastructure. Everyone just taps into it. So it can be, you know, infra or in, in what is it? Intra or inter, right? Inter, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so a protocol is like a public good. It's a common set of rules that aren't owned by anybody, correct? Yeah. Okay. And they can't be, you know, they can't be enclosed in the market. And I think that's the big point, like with yoga and journalism, the market enclosure is the problem. Once it becomes a profit model, then the worst parts of whatever, like clickbait, you know, all those things that you use to drive monetization become the deciding factor, mm -hmm. not the actual quality of the thing you're making. Mm -hmm. So the, the profit model is the ad driven model, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to get those clicks. So therefore you create content that'll give you clicks so you'll get money so you can, you know, feed yourselves and continue being a journalist. Right. But then at the cost of yeah, <laughs> your integrity. <laughs> yeah. And the same applies to yoga too. We have um, a lot of yoga is done by class. So there's a lot of a certain class that has resources and that's how a lot of yoga is accessed. So you're eliminating mm -hmm. an entire um, population, multiple populations that can't access it because it's too expensive to get in the classroom. And then you lose mm. the spirituality aspect of the quality of it because it's being taught in a way that's um, commoditized because it's a business. And that's, mm. you know, it's just the way it is. I was just going to say it's always good to like compare 
explain how this is different than now because you know people could say well we could just that's like facebook you just start like a facebook group or like subreddit or like there's pl- meetup.com like there's plenty of places where you could just like form a, a yoga group or whatever but then it's like and so you have to explain okay but what if meetup.com goes out of business what if somebody buys meetup.com like we we kind of uh socialize at the behest of uh of these companies and so even if like the business model and the advertising doesn't bother you if you want to build something that can last and that you actually have control over then you're going to have to move to like a a web3 decentralized version of things because then um like i was saying you get digital permanence you can build for the long term um because it's really it's uh, nigh impossible to you know bring these things down once once you build them and also the human aspect i mean like like even the meetup example you know, there's there's meetups that I join, but I don't feel connected to them as family. Whereas with Journoda, I feel like y'all are like my my ride or die bitches. Like this is family, and so I think that's part of it too. Is not just the technical aspect, but the organizational aspect. Like, can you bring humans together from all over the place, find this common mission, and then become this cohesive unit where you can move something complicated like this forward. And I think that's also a really interesting dynamic that hasn't really been in play. I mean, yeah, you could do it in a Facebook group, but like here we own all of the all of the collaboration aspects. So yes, Discord is kind of a dumpster fire, but it's still, you know, nobody's like I'm, when I'm in Discord, I'm not worried that Zuckerberg's hanging over my shoulder, like you know, hey, what are you ta- what are you talking about? Yeah, and we're we have the right to exit. I mean, we can move to a different platform where, like, if you're going to try and uh, get a Facebook group to move somewhere else, like uh, it'll probably just dissolve. Um, but I think, you know, removing the community from, uh, from the tools and then being able to choose, um, permanent tools that you actually own and control, I think is the, the power of it. But mm-hmm. I think you kind of have to lay down the harms and, and the difference because, you know, people say, well, I can just use Venmo to send money. Um, and so, we just need to think more deeply about like how how these transactions and how these interactions are actually uh, enabled behind the scenes, at least like on a conceptual level, so that we can really clarify to journalists like how this is different and how it's fundamentally um, not necessarily better, but like I think better in the way that it can. There's more opportunity to build something. Um, that's what you want rather than just morphing what you, what you want into the tools of some other business's agenda. So, um, I, I find, yeah, that argument that, that Keith is alluding to that we definitely hear a lot of like, well, all, all these things that you want to do, all these things that you're building, like this thing that we have over here, like it, it already does that. And it's like, well, if it already does it so perfectly, why are all these people building all these alternatives? Like there's clearly there's clearly a demand mm-hmm. uh, or a dissatisfaction uh, with the way that current uh, with the way the current paradigm operates and the way that the, the current systems are are handling things. Like I, I feel like there's no no point in even like addressing <laughs> that the, the, those uh, like well we don't need to we've already got that. It's like well we do. And maybe it can be better. 
I mean, Twitter is a great example. We don't even have to like, all you have to do is just say, look at Twitter. I mean, journalists, watching journalists and media outlets navigating what Musk has done to Twitter in the last two months is fascinating. And then to see journalists and media outlets go to another centralized social media platform like Post News without Mm. any acknowledgement that they're just going from one devil to the next one. And Mm. then watching a handful of them go to Mastodon and be like, oh, what's this decentralization thing? I'm like, oh, it's the thing we've been talking about for years. So that to me is fascinating as these systems collapse. I mean, with you know Trump coming back into Facebook, we're going to see another wave. You know, people are going to have to really have a come to Jesus about using these platforms that are destroying their families. I mean, I'm watching friends who have teenagers navigate the things that their teenagers are seeing on Twitter and the thing, the things they're following, and it is heartbreaking. So I think that as more of that unravels and happens, then I think people are openly looking for alternatives. So I think it'll be easier Mm. to, not that we need to go around convincing everybody, but it'll just be easier to have the conversation. And it it does feel, at least I get the sense that we're at this, maybe it's a transitional phase where, at least in the case of Jerno Dow and and a lot of other Dows, part of their presence, part of their, their structure is kind of directly on the decentralized protocol level where they where they have control over the 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 tools the, the like the token contracts and everything they have kind of direct unmediated control over some of their presence some of their, their structure but then some of their their structure is still kind of mediated by these platforms that that do facilitate communication and coordination and make a lot of stuff easier in certain respects and i guess it's just a matter of identifying you know how, how much of our structure can we can we transfer to this direct decentralized protocol level then how much of it, how much do we need to rely on platforms to make our lives easier? Uh, And it feels like, it feels like, like you could potentially view that as a transition where as, as the people driving the organization or the, the lead contributors get a better sense of how to navigate the unmediated decentralized level, they can build more and more, of that organization on that level and have to rely less and less on the platforms. But maybe maybe it's having some degree of, of reliance on the platforms isn't that isn't that big a deal so long as we're not entirely reliant on them. Yeah, still got to eat, you know? And uh, yeah. that's one thing that uh, people say about the ad-driven model. Okay, you know, we know the ad-driven model's bad and all, and we, you have these amazing, wonderful tools over here. Decentralization is great, but I still got to eat at the end of the day. So, so I guess we can close out with maybe just, I mean, we're kind of over time. I, we could go, I guess that's why we're a podcast. We can keep this conversation going, <laughs> you know, but, but what's a Web3 tool that will help us be able to eat and do journalism in a web, in a decentralized way? <laughs> I think figuring out how to do UBI through DAOs. We could figure that little nugget out. I know we've brainstormed on it. Um, I think that is one avenue of support so we can all eat. And then as treasuries grow, you're able to spread that UBI around to the community as well. Um, mm. That's just one tiny little nugget. And I mean, I feel like we can, okay. we can, we already have the tools to do stuff like that. It just, it seems like in, in our case and in other cases, it's just a matter of where do you get the money to even distribute that way, or do you rely on some Ponzi-nomic, you know, native <laughs> token system that's that's questionable in, in all of its own ways? Um, but I, I I do think there's potential for stuff like that, and and maybe it's just 
a matter of an organization getting set up as the right kind of nonprofit structure to accept you know, philanthropic donations that can be distributed in this kind of UBI-like way. But then I guess that, that that organization needs to be doing something to deserve those donations from whoever is making them, I, I suppose. And I think Substack's a good uh, like bridge uh, tool because you know it's getting some adoption and seeing mm-hmm. some success. Like people have seen like being an individual with like a small number of like dedicated subscribers can actually pay the bills. But then, um, so that's great. But then, what if you want to charge people less or like you can't quite make ends meet? Then if you get rid of Substack and you control the relationship with the audience, that little margin might end up being the difference uh, for people. And so just explaining it in terms of uh, control, ownership, and take rate, I think uh, the models aren't built yet, but the, the people who see an opportunity, like there's tons of better tools out there to just take existing models and make them more efficient, make them work for you and um, lower the threshold of like how much of an audience you need. Because if you're going to pay the bills with advertising, you need like 20 to 30 X, like the audience that you need if you're like subscription based. And so, you know, just talking numbers with people and just practical, like how many, how many fans can you get? How many subscribers can you get? Um, I think, to me at least it seems more manageable than trying to like get an ever decreasing like click per thousand rate you know for like ever deteriorating quality of ads for an ever shrinking (laughs) uh, portion of audience that allows themselves to be tracked and it's just uh you know i think it just makes a lot of sense to content creators including journalists to be like, okay, I just want to do this thing. I want to find the people who like it. And then I'll charge them like a reasonable fee for me to do it. And that's not possible with an intermediary because that intermediary needs to run a business that's supported by that those transactions. And so the numbers all have to be like way higher. You take out the intermediary and suddenly it becomes like doable, you know, because you don't have to pay the overhead of this whole other company in between you and your audience. Um, so I guess thinking more long term, you know, there's there are surveys that tell us that uh, something like in excess of seventy percent of uh, people, this is in the U.S., uh, don't trust the media, which is just such an utter collapse of, of an industry that is uh, that is built on trust. That it's amazing, uh, and you know, we have with blockchain distributed ledgers, decentralized servers, this kind of suite of technologies that we're talking about, you you can strip away all the financialization stuff and just focus on the idea of a immutable, decentralized source to store information. And it's just just like custom made for for journalists to uh, actually fulfill the promise of, of the transparency that we always say that we're about uh, being transparent. Uh, I mean, the reality is that um, 
journalism, like uh, every other industry, is, is competitive and uh, outlets are, are competing with each other. So you're always holding some amount of information, sources, uh, even revisions and errors that you make uh, in your in your uh, stories. There's incentive to to obscure all that and to keep it uh, close to the vest. Um, and due to that reality, it, it's uh, not necessarily surprising, I suppose, that the, the trust numbers are that low. But this this technology allows us the, the, the option to actually do the transparency that we talk about uh, in, in a radical new way. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's a long path to being able to eat, but to actually... To actually do journalism and to build this new protocol for uh, gathering and reporting the news in a more transparent way than it's ever been done before, I, I think that's a meal ticket. Well, how much longer? Because I'm super hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stomach problems. Slow down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's right. I'm hearing basically a lot of, of we're bringing it back to our own neighborhood, to our own communities. And if you're um, a person that lives in your community and you do well by your community, you're not going to starve. Everybody's going to get together, band together, borrow a cup of sugar, give a cup of sugar and help each other out. They're not going to let every let one person in the community get rich. You got to take everybody with you. You know, but uh, that's just part of living in a community. And I think that applies to journalism as well. Bring back the information, the news back to our communities, stuff that's relevant to us. Um, speaking of eating, um, JournoDAO has an NFT. <laughs> so go to JournoDAO.xyz. You can always contact one of us and figure out how to get this NFT. It's purely a NFT to support journo dow so you're not going to get rich off speculating on it so um yeah and um we're also we also have an nft for this particular episode one that's free and go to journodow.xyz and you will be able to add that to your wallet to be able to display to the world if anybody ever looks up your eth address or whatever to show that you are an og fan and supporter and follower of journo dow and who knows maybe one day we'll be like the first uh, people on MTV, Martha Quinn, Kurt Loder, and all that group. That's <laughs> how they started it, right? So, <laughs> um, if only they had NFTs of the first MTV flags, you know, but <laughs> with the astronaut. <laughs> I'm just wondering if in 30 years that means we're all going to be on Fox Business with Kennedy. I think that's what you just said. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Which Kennedy. This is Mark Penfield. <laughs> <laughs> I think we know the answer to that, Keith. <laughs> yeah. All right, then. Um, good episode, you all. And uh, we'll see you on the other side. Bye.